Would you open your Bibles, please, uh, to the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 25, the final verse of the book's final chapter, where we read, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And that tells us, of course, that the Apostle John has been selective. He's made editorial decisions in the composition of his theological biography of Jesus. Um, he's, he chose what to leave in, what to leave out, what to write. Uh, he only has so much scroll space. Now, turn back one chapter to the last two verses of chapter 20. The evangelist writes this in verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, there we have it. What the Apostle Paul did select for inclusion in his, what the Apostle John did select for inclusion in his gospel is for the purposes of eliciting our faith and our trust and our belief in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. That's John's aim. That's his purpose in writing this book. Jesus, he is the long-expected anointed one of God who brings God's rule, God's kingdom to bear on earth. And if that's John's purpose, then it makes sense that our sermon passage today, taken from the 10th chapter of his gospel, serves that same end, which it does. John wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah through this beautiful picture of Jesus as the good shepherd. And that by believing in him, we might have life in his name, eternal life. Because Jesus is the good shepherd who knows his sheep by name. Jesus is the shepherd who nurtures his sheep. Jesus is the shepherd who dies deliberately as a sacrifice for his sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who transforms his sheep. He gives sight to the blind. Our Lord says, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? If we're believers, if we're Christians, then our salvation in him is secure. We don't have to wait on tenderhooks for judgment day, to await God's final verdict, we can know that our salvation is secure in this life. We can have full assurance of our salvation. It's all here in John chapter 10, laid out step by step. Those whom God the Father chose for himself in eternity past, he also gave to his son, Jesus. And for those who belong to him, Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life. And those for whom Jesus lays down his life, he also calls to himself. Some of us, when we're 10 years old, others when we're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 
and those whom Jesus calls, every one of us hears his voice and we follow him. And to those who follow him, he gives eternal life. And so there will be one flock and one shepherd over that flock forever. Those to whom Jesus gives eternal life, they can never be taken from his hand. That's all here in John chapter 10. Beloved, this is the foundation of our unshakable confidence. The finished work of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd of the sheep. And so it's with eager expectation and full humility we wait upon God, the Holy Spirit, to illuminate our minds and teach us through the preaching of his holy word. So let's, let's establish the flow of the text first. Uh, as we saw last week, the accounts in chapter 9 and 10 are linked together. Chapter 9 kind of serves as the backdrop for chapter 10. You'll recall Jesus heals a man who was born blind. He gives him sight. So turn back to chapter 9, verse 13. We're just going to go through this very quickly. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they asked his parents, verse 19, is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know he is our son, the parents replied, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this, verse 22, because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So, how's that for being faithful shepherds over God's people? If you confess that Jesus is the Messiah, we're going to excommunicate you from the synagogue. Verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Which means they excommunicate him from the synagogue. He's excommunicated by the religious leaders of Israel for his testimony about Jesus the Messiah. 
Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believed. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see. That is, those people who are in spiritual darkness, who are lost, and who know it. Jesus came to open their eyes, to give them the light of revelation that will enable them to see. For judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see, that is, those who think they see, will become blind. Verse 40, some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And with great irony, Jesus replies, If you were blind, that is, if you acknowledged that you were spiritually blind, if you acknowledged your lost condition and you were crying out to God for illumination, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. In particular, the sin of unbelief that rejects my revelation. But now that you claim you can see because you're satisfied with the light of the law of Moses as interpreted by your man-made traditions, and so you feel you can reject, you can reject the true light when it shines upon you in me, your guilt remains. And then Jesus declares, chapter 10, verse 1, Very truly, I tell you Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. See, so that's the setup. That's the narrative flow from chapter 9 to chapter 10. It's all one unit. There really shouldn't be a chapter division with chapter 10. That came later. It's not part of the inspired word of God. And uh, we see that the backdrop then of chapter 10 and Jesus, his good shepherd discourse, is actually, it's quite dark. It's the glaring irresponsibility. It's the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders. The healed man has been treated roughly by these shepherds of Israel. He's been thrown out of the synagogue. He's been excommunicated. And Jesus now is setting up a contrast. Thieves and robbers, they destroy the sheep. But Jesus is the good shepherd. He's not a thief. He's not a robber. Jesus is the shepherd who knows his sheep by name, who nurtures his sheep. He's the shepherd who dies deliberately as a sacrifice for his sheep. Jesus is the shepherd who transforms his sheep. He gives sight to the blind. So if you look at your bulletin, you can see our first point. Jesus knows his own people and draws out his own flock from a mixed fold representing Judaism, the first five verses. Look at verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, that's that's who he's talking to here, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Who here was raised on a farm? Two people. Okay, so... The rest of us are city slickers, I guess. Uh, all these agrarian sheep farmer details, uh, they're, they're foreign then to most of us, except for you two maybe. Uh, but they'd be very familiar to John's readers. This is a culture that knows all about shepherds and sheep. 
They're everywhere, everywhere. So think of a, think of a large enclosure, a sheepfold, where several families keep their sheep together. That's the sheep pen of verse 1. And these families, together, they all hire an under-shepherd to guard the gate at night. And in the morning, the gatekeeper lets in only the appropriate shepherds. And because they're authorized shepherds, right, they just, they just walk in through the gate. That's how they enter. The shepherds then call their own sheep, not the sheep belonging to the other families, their own sheep, and they take them out to the pasture to graze. But anyone interested in stealing the sheep or wounding the sheep, they would have to obviously avoid the gatekeeper. They would gain access to the sheepfold, sheepfold some other way. They would want to uh, avoid the gate, right? So, capiche? Makes sense? And Jesus' point is that these unauthorized people enter the sheep pen to brutalize the sheep. By, con- by contrast, the shepherd... The shepherd knows his sheep. He's recognized by the gatekeeper. He's recognized by the sheep, too. And he leads his sheep out to pasture for their own good. And, of course, this wouldn't be the first time the Pharisees heard religious teaching about shepherds. Uh, The Bible is full of shepherd imagery. I made a mistake. I told Alex to read Psalm 24. I meant Psalm 23. So if you're kind of confused by it. Actually, it worked out well, though. So, uh, But the Bible is full of shepherd imagery, probably most famously Psalm 23. Uh, But it's also, it's imagery that develops over time uh, through the different books of the Bible over the course of redemptive history. And it's not always a pretty picture. I mean, Psalm 23 is a beautiful picture. It's not always like that, though. Uh, God has some excoriating things to say about the shepherds of Israel in the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm I'm just going to read to you three texts. I want us to actually follow along the Bible with just one of them, though. So let me just read the first one here. It's Isaiah 56, verses 9 to 12. Come, all you beasts of the field. Come and devour all you beasts of the forest. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They are all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. They seek their own gain. Come, each one cries. Let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer. And tomorrow will be like today or even far better. So you can see, these religious leaders of Israel... They're only looking out for number one. Or think of Jeremiah 23, verses 1 to 2. God says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock... And driven them away and have not bestowed care on them. I will bestow punishment on you for the evil that you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. But by far, the most important Old Testament text dealing with shepherds is the text that Alex read for us this morning. uh, Ezekiel 34. I'd like us to turn there to Ezekiel 34. It begins with a scathing denunciation, a divine judgment of the shepherds who have been leading Israel. And that occupies the first 10 verses of Ezekiel 34. And God levels two charges at them. First, 
The shepherds had been greedily fleecing the sheep. They'd been exploiting the flock to make themselves comfortable and rich. But they have not nurtured the sheep. They've not cared for the sheep entrusted to them. And these are God's sheep. Second, far from protecting the sheep by keeping them in one flock, the conduct of the shepherds has led to the sheep being scattered. A term here that signals the exile. The Babylonian exile is a result of this. That's how serious it is. So, what then will God do to ensure that these false shepherds, these very dangerous shepherds, will never, ever be in charge of his sheep again? God will put himself in their place. That's the promise. God will put himself in their place. He will himself come to shepherd his sheep. We read in verses 10 through 16, the Lord says, I will rescue my flock. I will bring them out from the nations. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I will shepherd the flock with justice. I, I, I. But then we come to verse 23 of Ezekiel 34, and suddenly the language changes. All along, God has been declaring that he himself will be the shepherd of Israel. Now he says, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So there we have it. A shepherd who is both Yahweh, God, and someone in King David's line. Who could that possibly be? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is this eschatological, this final last times shepherd in the line of King David. He will tend God's people. He will be their shepherd. And everything Jesus says in his good shepherd discourse in John chapter 10 has this Ezekiel text in the background. Who are the thieves and robbers? They're the religious leaders who are more interested in fleecing the sheep than in guiding, nurturing, and guarding the sheep. It's these Pharisees he's talking to. He's calling them out. These leaders who excommunicated the man who was born blind. They don't listen to Jesus' claims. They don't recognize Jesus as the revelation of God. They claim to see, but they're blind. Instead, they tell this sheep over whom God has placed them as shepherds that he's been steeped in sin from birth, right? They belittle him. They judge him. And so they condemn themselves with their own words. You are this man's disciple. We follow Moses before expelling him this sheep from the sheep pen. So go back to verse one of John chapter 10, back to the communal sheep pen where all the families keep their sheep with the watchman guarding the gate. Very truly, I tell you Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
The shepherd calls out his own sheep, and his own sheep follow him. The other sheep, those sheep who are not his, they they stay in the pen. And those sheep who remain in the pen, as it applies to these verses, as it applies to this theologically, are unbelieving Jews. Jews who do not believe Jesus is Lord and Messiah. Jesus comes to the sheep pen of Judaism in these opening verses, and he calls his own sheep. He calls them out individually. His own sheep hear his voice. His own sheep follow him. And then he leads those sheep out to nourishing pastures. Beloved, what's the theme? What's the biblical doctrine we're starting to see developed here? We see it all throughout the passage. Any takers? This is not a rhetorical question. What doctrine do we start seeing developed? Election. God's sovereignty in salvation. God has his people that he's predestined to salvation in Jesus Christ from eternity past, and he saves them. He saves all of them. Skip down to verse 26. But you do not believe because... You are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. Just think what those verses are saying. Implications abound. What explains the obtuseness of so many of Jesus' hearers is that they don't belong to Jesus' sheep. And it's not just that Jesus' own sheep do hear his voice. He knows them and they follow him but that those who are not his sheep do not hear his voice. He does not know them, and therefore they do not follow Jesus. And of course, neither John nor Jesus means to reduce moral responsibility here in the slightest. When we see this this tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility all throughout John's gospel, all throughout the Bible, that people are not Jesus' sheep does not excuse them. It indicts them. Verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. That means we are one in purpose. We're one in action. So, Christian, be encouraged. What a glorious, glorious, comforting, God-exalting, grace-extolling doctrine God's election in salvation is. Does this passage of Scripture stir up your soul in praise to God? Is this glorious truth fueling your worship, Christian, your love, your adoration for the God who has loved you with an everlasting love, who has secured, secured your salvation? God God wants you to take consolation in this doctrine. We must not allow the evil one to rob us of our joy as we contemplate the electing mercies of our God and Savior. This text needs to be putting us into the dust where we belong. We need to be reading this passage and exalting God to the highest heights, and not creating chinks in his armor of blameless righteousness and infinite mercy. Here again, 
the wonderful promise of Jesus, our Savior, the Good Shepherd. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We're one in purpose, one in action. But Jesus is pushing this sheep farming metaphor to the wall because in Jesus' story, this shepherd knows his sheep by name. And they follow him. I mean, that's not how it actually works in the real world. But with Jesus in election, it does, right? And of course, Jesus isn't speaking about sheep. He's talking about people. He's talking about his elect within the nation of Israel at this point. Peter the Apostle, Mary Magdalene, Stephen the Martyr, Miriam the sister of Lazarus, Saul of Tarsus, follow me. And they hear their shepherd and they follow him. And he doesn't lose one of them. Jesus calls his own sheep by name and these people inevitably follow. Verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Christ's sheep inevitably follow him. Have you seen the, uh, the 1995 children's movie, Babe, about the sheep herding piglet? Can you raise your hand? Okay, there needs to be more. All right. It's really, that movie is really worth watching as an adult. Uh, I recommend that movie to you. Your kids will love it, but as an adult, you'll like it even more, actually. Uh, but in that movie, you see something of how shepherds in the West uh, drive their sheep. Uh, it's from behind using a border collie, uh, supposedly the most intelligent of all dog breeds. Sheep, of course, are dumb as rocks. Brothers and sisters, it's not for nothing that God is called our shepherd and that we are the sheep of his pasture. Right. Do you know how dumb sheep are? It's actually, it's staggering. Uh, a few years ago, this is a true story. 1,500 sheep followed one another off a cliff in eastern Turkey. 400 sheep fell 15 meters to their death in a ravine, but they broke the fall of the other 1,100 who followed them who all survived. So think about that. One sheep walks off a cliff and 1,499 follow right along. And soon they were piled so deep that the ones on the bottom, they were crushed to death. But the ones on top, they were lying on a big, downy, soft pillow. <laughs> All that to say, in the West, shepherds drive their sheep from behind using sheepdogs. But the shepherds of the Near East, both now and in Jesus' day, lead their flocks. They go on ahead. Their voice calling out to them. The sheep recognize the voice of their shepherd. I came across this story on a blog post by Pastor Herschel York. He wrote this. On one of my trips to Israel, I saw a man behind a flock of sheep driving them down the road by holding out two long sticks, one on either side, in an attempt to force them to stay together in front of him. Puzzled that I'd never seen a shepherd lead his sheep like that, I asked my guide, why is that shepherd driving his sheep that way? I've never seen that before. Oh, he answered, that's not a shepherd, that's a butcher. He has bought those sheep, and now he has to drive them to the slaughterhouse. They won't follow him because they don't know him. He can't lead them, so he has to drive them. So let me give us all a, a heads up. When Jesus says a few verses from now, I am the good shepherd, 
He's not saying, I am a great shepherd unlike the shoddy shepherds that you've had before. He means a whole lot more than that. He means, I am the Messiah. I am the promised eschatological, last times shepherd of Ezekiel 34. Search the scriptures. God himself has promised to come and lead his sheep. God himself, in the person of his servant David, and here I am. I call my own sheep by name, and I lead them out into nourishing pasture. I go on ahead, and my sheep follow me because they know my voice. I know my sheep, and they know their shepherd. They will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they don't recognize a stranger's voice. Brothers and sisters, hear that good news, all right? God knows us. Not in the sense that he knows everybody and everything because he's omniscient, but in the sense that he owns his people and knows them personally, just as we know him personally and experientially. God concerns himself with our welfare. God is not simply demanding things of us, beloved. He knows us. God loves us. God cares for us. Do you see the picture that that our Lord is painting here? Biblical Christianity is more than a belief system. It's more than a worldview that works for us, that we've adopted, and now we're committed to live by its precepts. Biblical Christianity is nothing less than knowing God and being known by God. There is deep, deep personal knowledge in this shepherd-sheep relationship. Jesus knows his sheep And we know our shepherd. And that intimacy is grounded upon the intimacy between God the Father and God the Son. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. Whoa. That's, a, that's an amazing... What, what are all the other religions of the world selling combined that can top that? I want to know God like that. I want to enjoy this sort of intimate fellowship, this deep personal knowledge with my creator. What else is there? Tell us more, Jesus. Point number two, Jesus nurtures his own people, verses 6 through 10. Verse 6, Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Why not? Why don't they get it? Because they're not his sheep. They don't hear his voice. And now the metaphor of the shepherd changes. Jesus keeps revising the dimensions and application of this metaphor as he drives home a variety of points. So what we're going to do now isn't What we're reading now isn't just an explanation of verses 1 through 5. It's more of an expansion, I think, of three dominant themes, uh, three dominant features of the shepherding language found in those first five verses. So the gate, the shepherd, and Jesus' own sheep. He now expands on all three of those things, all right? Verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Jesus is saying, There is just one door to the sheepfold. 
and sheep and shepherds alike must enter by this door. There is no other way. There is no other door. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All, verse 8, who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Now, verse 8 is tricky. Uh, the language is strong. It's too, it's too strong, it seems to me, to be, to be referring to wicked local religious leaders who care more for their own gain than for the sheep in their charge. It just it doesn't sound right. It's, it's too strong. And Leon Morris, he's a, he's a John scholar, he believes that Jesus is talking about messianic pretenders, people who are pretending to be the Messiah. So self-anointed uh, spiritual deceivers. Men who promise the people freedom, but who lead them into war and suffering and slavery. But Jesus' sheep don't listen to them. They don't put their hope in them, political messiahs, even if large crowds are taken up with the pretenders. And that holds true in the political realm, certainly. How many, how many political leaders in the last century promised their people utopia and, you know, ended in the deaths of millions of people? Christians don't put their faith in political messiahs. But these self-anointed spiritual deceivers are also found in the church. Pastor Alex was praying about that this morning. Think of all the church leaders. Think of the shepherds in this country who don't practice any kind of discipline over their flock. The sheep they shepherd are free to indulge sin unrepentantly. They're not going to rock the boat. Or think of pastors who make the gospel into a means of securing health and wealth, who fleece their own sheep, and who teach their people that the gospel is primarily a means of securing worldly prosperity. That's absolutely wicked. Or think of all the pastors who domesticate the scripture to accommodate the culture on issues related to gender, marriage, sexual immorality. Does that teaching nourish the sheep? Does that kind of leadership protect the sheep? No, that kind of teaching destroys the sheep. Live that way, live that way, and it shows that you're not one of Jesus' sheep. Verse 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Friends, Jesus is the sole means by which sheep may enter the safety of the fold or the forge of the pasture. Coming in, going out, Jesus is the only, only way. The thought is very close to what he says in chapter 14, verse 6, famously, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's not a narrow, nasty, intolerant bit of doctrine that the church keeps in the closet until someone, someone's been good and baptized, and, and then we wheel it out. By the way, Jesus is the only way to heaven. Uh, it's sheer grace. It's beautiful, sovereign, God-glorifying grace lavished upon undeserving rebels. Look at verse 9. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. We can depend upon it because God has accomplished full salvation for his people in the death and resurrection of Christ. Believe in him, friend. Enter through the Jesus gate and you will be saved today. Just like that. 
It's a free offer to all people. You only have to repent and believe. The thief, verse 10, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Again, implications abound. Jesus is indeed the long prophesied eschatological last time shepherd. He is the bread of life. He is the eternal word of God. He is God's ultimate truth and revelation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's his gospel alone that saves sinners. And any teacher, any prophet, any guru, any pastor, any pope, who does not confess all of this and teach this to their people is a thief. A thief who comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Period. Full stop. Right? N- nothing is lacking. Nothing more is required. It's not more, uh, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. To have life here and to have it to the full means we know this shepherd. We know him. We know God, and it means our spiritual life is flourishing. And that knowledge of God turns on Jesus dealing with our sin through his death and resurrection. And us living with eternity's values in view. And anyone, anyone who tells you different, even if they're an angel from heaven, friend, Jesus says they're a thief who comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But the church can see people like that coming a mile away. Do you know how? They keep pushing the gospel to the periphery. They they keep assuming the gospel. They keep relativizing the gospel. They keep adding to the gospel. They keep subtracting from the gospel. They keep denying the gospel. It all keeps coming back again and again to the gospel, the good news of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, and in consequence, what he will accomplish in the new heavens and new earth, which leads directly to our third point. Jesus dies for his own people, including Gentiles. Verses 11 to 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And here we see Jesus' sheep herding metaphor transcending its own categories. He's pushing it right to the wall because a shepherd deliberately dying for his sheep. Obviously, that makes no sense. Uh, A shepherd should be willing to risk his life to some extent, I suppose, for the sheep, right? I mean, if you see, if the wolf is coming in, hankering for lamb chops, he needs to do something. He needs to intervene somehow. He's supposed to intervene, but it would never, ever be the actual intention of the shepherd to deliberately die for the sheep or to offer his life for the sheep. But that's precisely the strong language our Lord uses. Jesus doesn't merely risk his life for his flock. He lays his life down. He lays it down deliberately. He lays it down willingly in line with his father's will. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that language suggests sacrifice, doesn't it? The good shepherd's death is on behalf of the sheep. The assumption being the sheep are in mortal danger. And by his death, 
the sheep are saved. It's in their defense. The shepherd lays down his own life. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's willing, deliberate sacrifice. And if we interpret what Jesus says here in light of this book's climax, then we know Jesus laying down of his life for the sheep as a willing sacrifice happens at Calvary's Hill. It happens at the cross. That's what these words anticipate. But there's a contrast at work here in New City. Over against the deep-seated self-interest of these hired hands, people who have no attachment to the sheep whatsoever, no real attachment, Jesus is the good shepherd. That's the contrast. Verse 12, the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me. And I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And then Jesus makes a very important jump, a salvation historical jump. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. And who are these other sheep not of this sheep pen? Who do they represent? Gentiles. Now, as far as I know, as things stand currently, Every official member of New City Baptist Church is a Gentile. Uh, We're all non-Jews. Jesus says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. Beloved, here we read the fulfillment of the promise that in Abraham's offspring and his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's its fulfillment right there. This takes us right back to Genesis chapter 12. This is Jesus' promise of our salvation. The eth- it's about the ethnic expansion of God's new covenant community. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And here we have the convergence of 100 different streams of salvation history. And it's worthwhile, I think, reminding ourselves of this massive epochal shift in redemptive history. I'm just going to read to you a text. I don't want you to actually follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to read you a text from Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Living Translation. I think it's very helpful. Just just listen to this. Ephesians 2.11. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, 
But now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. John 10, 16. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason, verse 17, my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Which doesn't mean the son had to earn his father's love by laying down his life or that the father withheld his love from the son until Jesus agreed to die. No, the love of the father for the son is eternally, is eternally linked with the obedience of the son to the father. We read in John 5 that the son only does what his father tells him to do, and he does all his father tells him to do, and Jesus' obedience to his father culminates in his willingness to go to the cross. I lay down my life only to take it up again, because Jesus dies, brothers and sisters, in order to rise. He dies in order to rise. Jesus' death was always with the resurrection in view. And by his rising to proceed toward his ultimate glorification and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit so that we might live. Verse 18, no one takes it from me. Jesus is no martyr. No one takes my life from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command... This command to lay down my life for the sheep and to take it up again in resurrection, this command I received from my Father. And so, Jesus won't lose one sheep his Father has given to him. Not one. He will raise them all, all of his sheep, on that last day, just as he himself is raised. Isn't that marvelous? See, this is why I love, I love reading, I love studying, I love preaching John's gospel. I, I, I love these long chunks of discourse where Jesus talks, because with every verse, just new glorious vistas are opened up before us. It's so clear to see the grace, the grace of the gospel. And the more I learn about Jesus, and that the the death that he died in my place, the wrath that he bore in my stead, the more I love him. And the more certain I am that Jesus is who he says he is. Are you the same? 
How does Jesus' audience react? Verse 19. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Which means at the end of the whole passage, the Apostle John makes sure, remember that what kicked things off, right? The account of the healing of the man born blind. Jesus gives sight to the blind. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? In other words, over against these false religious teachers who can criticize and make rules and just ravage the flock, Jesus actually transforms people. He dies and gives us life. He opens our eyes so that we can see. He makes the lame walk. He raises the dead. Jesus transforms people. This good shepherd ensures, John chapter 3, people are born again. He ensures, John 4, they never thirst again. He ensures, John 5, they never hunger again. He ensures, John 9, though they were blind, yet now they see. He ensures, John 10, they have abundant life, life to the full. Jesus transforms people. The transformation isn't complete yet, of course, but one day it will be. Friend, it must be asked, Is Jesus your shepherd? Are you one of his sheep? Are you part of the one flock over which there is one shepherd? Do you hear Jesus' voice calling you today to leave your sin aside and to follow him in faith and him alone? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Repent. Believe. Christian, have you been encouraged by what we've read in God's word today? What's been preached? As alien as the shepherd metaphor is to most of us today, what does it tell us about Jesus' relationship with his people? Jesus knows his people. Jesus nurtures his people. Jesus dies for his people. Jesus transforms his people. And not only do we see these beautiful facets of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, this passage is also what John Piper calls the chain of Christian security. We see this laid out for us step by step, and with this I'm going to close. Those whom God the Father chose for himself in eternity past, he also gave to his son, Jesus. And for those who belong to him, Jesus the good shepherd lays down his life. And those for whom Jesus lays down his life, he also calls to himself. Some of us when we're 10 years old, others at 20, 30, 40, 50, 60. And those whom Jesus calls, every one of us hears his voice and we follow him. And to those who follow Jesus, he gives eternal life. And those to whom Jesus gives eternal life, they can never be taken from his hand. 
And so there will be one flock and one shepherd forever. Amen.